Following is my conversation with Prudence Ferreira. Prudence is a passive design building consultant and the former president and current board member of FIAS. We talk about passive building design, resilient housing, and the power of engineering. This is the Kathleen Sessions podcast, and you can find me at thekathleensessions.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Prudence. Define passive design. So passive design, um, I would define as a climate-specific and cost-optimized set of building science principles that will get um, any kind of building to a very high efficiency, low carbon um, performance, and as a pathway to, to net zero, that's the most logical and science-based. Um, so why is it so important? What What is it specifically about it? Um, and maybe some of that is its simplicity, right? But, um, can, and, and I guess with that, can you give some specific examples of what makes up passive design? Sure. So I feel like passive design is particularly important right now because we, we have very limited resources. We have increasing population. We're struggling. Many of our more progressive cities and jurisdictions are um, planning to do uh, carbon neutral cities. Uh, university campuses are doing that as well. And there are a lot of different guidelines and certifications out there. And all of them have something to contribute to sustainability. But in my mind, uh, the simplicity, as you mentioned, of Passive House and its building science focus really gets us to where we need to go with the least fanfare and the most direct efficacy. Um, it really is a place where the where the rubber meets the road, if you will. Um, and as we are both retrofitting existing building stock and constructing new buildings, having a focus on those building science principles, which we know are effective and they're not complex, really helps us have confidence that we're designing these buildings in a way that they will be assets for us in the future rather than liabilities. And can you talk about what are some of the components that make up passive design? So if I'm going to build a house, we'll keep it simple because, you know, if I'm going to build a house, what are the things I would do that would be move me toward passive design or po possibly certification? I mean, what are the elements involved? Well, if you start with looking at the building site, um, what we're essentially doing with passive house design is we're balancing the flows of resources into and out of the site and on the site, the building. And what that means is we're looking at the flux of heat. We're looking at the flux of light or uh, solar gain. We're looking at the um, occupants that are going to be in the building. And we're looking at the equipment 
that's going to be in the building. And all of these need to be balanced. Now, the means by which we balance these are the passive house principles, the building science principles. Now, if you're building a house um, in the northern part of the US in a place where it's quite cold and snowy, <laughs> um, one of the building science principles that we use is continuous insulation. So if we're in a, a cold climate, we're going to use more insulation than we would if we're in a warm climate. Uh, another one of the principles that we use is avoidance of thermal bridging. Thermal bridging is where we have two components of a building that are coming together, whether it's a floor and a wall or a roof and a wall or a wall and a window. And Anytime we have interruptions in the continuousness of the building enclosure, that's a potential place where we can have short-circuiting of that insulation layer by structural or connective elements that are more conductive than insulation, like metal or wood. Um, and so in these areas, we try to pay really special attention um, as early as we can in design to eliminating the thermal bridges or mitigating them by using materials that are less conductive. And those thermal bridges are much, much more important in cold climates than they are in warm climates. Um, the other building science principle that we're using um, is energy recovery ventilation. Um, we want to have fresh air in these buildings. We want ind indoor air quality to be very high. Um, the next building science principle I will mention is air sealing. And so anytime you're going to seal up a building to um, separate it from the environment, which reduces pollution, reduces intrusion of moisture, which can cause indoor air issues as far as mold, um, starting to erode away the building assemblies. Anytime you're doing that, you need to make sure that you have fresh, filtered, conditioned air inside the building. So those two principles go hand in hand. Those have to be implemented together. You can't do one without the other. So energy recovery ventilation uh, is a method of bringing fresh air into the building through a core that is recovering uh, temperature and sometimes humidity, if it's an energy recovery ventilator, it's doing both uh, sensible temperature and uh, latent um, or humidity. Um, if it's a heat recovery ventilator, it's only exchanging temperature. It's not exchanging anything else. So depending on which type of device you have, which depends on which climate you're in, um, as you're bringing that fresh air in, you will either be adding humidity to it um, or subtracting humidity from it and um, equalizing the temperature. So if your outdoor temperature is cold and it's in the heating season, you will be adding heat back into or into that fresh air um, from the heat that is going out of your stale air in your building. And the way that these devices work, they're quite remarkably, actually, they typically recover 9 to 13 times the amount of energy as it takes to run them. Uh, so they, they're very efficient. The fans are very efficient. The recovery cores uh, for HRVs are passive. It's If you imagine a radiator, it's a bunch of tubes that are just exchanging temperature. So 
There's no moving parts there, but it's an energy recovery ventilator. There's usually a wheel, a desiccant wheel that is moving around. But again, the motors are extremely efficient, so they use very little energy, even though we run them all the time in these buildings. Um, and then the other principle I mentioned previously is air sealing. Uh, so we want these buildings to be airtight uh, because through the leaks is where we start to get trouble. We're either getting cold spots or drafts or we're having um, air leakage come into the building and cause issues with moisture buildup, um, condensation inside our assemblies or on our surfaces. And when we're air conditioning a building in a hot climate or heating a building in a cold climate, we want to keep that space conditioning in the building. We're providing that either through fossil fuels, you know, electricity, fossil fuels, or uh, limited renewable energy on site. So it's precious. We don't, we don't want it to just leak out of the building. Um, so passive design, uh, way more so than any other sustainability and energy-focused standards that are out there, has a very rigorous approach to air sealing, the most rigorous that there is, really. Um, so those are just a few of the, of the principles that we use. There are more. Um, but that's a, a quick introduction well, to what they and are. I'd, I'd love to take a step back for a moment and just, um, so, so basically what we're doing with pa passive design is take out the concept of, of how you're going to heat or cool the building for a moment in terms of mm -hmm. the way that you're going to do it. Set that aside for a moment. It's about how we, how we construct design how we design and construct the actual building that mm -hmm. allows um, us to maintain, um, I'll, I'll use the word comfortable, there's probably a better word, maintain um, comfortable temperatures regardless mm -hmm. of, of whether we're using um, gas heat, electric heat, geothermal, all those other things. It the building itself does such a magnificent job um, uh, providing consistent temperatures regardless of what's going on outside. So even if That's we're right. starting to move toward extreme cold or whether we're moving toward extreme hot and let's say all hell breaks loose and our gas gets cut off or our electricity gets cut off or the geothermal wells don't perform or something happens, right? The okay. building itself is going to protect the temperature, the internal temperature, because of the, the way that it was designed, the beautiful way it was designed in terms of, you know, the wall assemblies, which means, correct me if I'm wrong here, I might butcher this yeah. a little bit, but the wall assemblies, no. which means how um, the insulation comes together, you know, the, the way that we use the insulation, the way that um, all the mechanisms that related to the wall, and then to make sure that those places that normally would introduce opportunities for air leaks, like when we put in a window, a window's great, but a window often is a place where 
you know, we get air can warm air for in a cold climate and it's cold outside can leak out or cold air can come in. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Um, so it's, it's just paying really amazing attention to design and then executing mm -hmm. the design. And from what I understand, this isn't, this doesn't cost a lot. So, I want That's to talk right. about cost in a second, but I, so I just yeah. can't, I can't stress this enough that we can, till we're blue in the face, we can keep coming up with more ways to heat or cool our house in energy efficient mat, uh, in an energy efficient way. But there's nothing maybe more important that we can do than just when we build to build it properly. And that's what passive design does. So I just, I'm trying to put it in the context of like, and it, it, you've got it. Well, so, so talk a little bit about, um, the cost differentials to build in, to build using passive design. Um, and I also just want to say out loud and we can get to the differences in a little bit. Passive design mm -hmm. is, it, yes, it's for single family homes, but it can be used across every kind of commercial application as well in terms of multifamily homes, in terms of hospitals or industrial buildings. I mean, it can be used in multiple different ways. But um, in general, can you talk a little bit about the cost differential to build in a, a way that has passive design versus not? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few components that go into the consideration of cost. Uh, the first one would be the soft cost, right? Because we are paying special attention during the design process. So there is a little bit more thought and time that needs to be spent on detailing in the design process than we typically would see with conventional projects. Um, but it's not much of an uptick. So I would say it's fairly inconsequential. Uh, there is the soft cost of having a, a passive house consultant, which if you're doing a single family home, um, that may run anywhere between, you know, depending on the size of the home, it could be anywhere between 30000 and, you know, $50,000, something like that. Um, if it's a really, really fancy large house, it could be, it could be more. Um, but when we get into the large projects, it's it's a blip. It's a mm -hmm. tiny little blip um, with the budgets of, of these larger projects. Um, there are also costs of certification if a project decides it wants to pursue certification, which is a really fantastic idea if you want to make sure that the special attention paid in design and the special attention paid in construction are actually gelling and that everything that was intended got into the building in the way that it was intended to be there. Um, having a third party verify both the design and the construction, it's really helpful for the homeowner, for the building developer to, to have that assurance. Okay, this is what we actually intended it to be. Um, so there is a, a small audit added cost there, and that cost is usually per square foot, so it scales. Um, but we're talking, you know, cents on the dollar per square mm -hmm. foot, literally. Um, and then the largest cost addition is the materials. And really, we're looking at three primary areas where we're going to spend a little bit more um, on some projects and 
nothing more on other projects. And the determining factor between those two is scale. So when we're looking at a single family house, that's sort of our worst case scenario because we don't have economies of scale. Um, it's, it's usually, um, you know, a bespoke design instead of something that is, um, you know, modularized or, or scalable or repeating kind of design. Um, and the surface to volume ratios for single family homes are also the least advantageous. So we need more insulation on those. We need better windows to create that resilient envelope that can um, cushion us from the shifts that are happening outside and keep that, that nice indoor um, environment. So on a single family home, what we have been seeing over the past um, 12 to 15 years of doing passive houses in the US is that there can be a cost premium anywhere between 5% and maybe at the very, very upper end, 15%. And this largely depends on which climate you're in. And it also depends on the complexity of the house, right? If you have um, a single family home that's all glazing, you know, it's a glass box, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna spend a lot more money you know, probably more towards that 10 to 15% range than you would if you had um, an intelligently considered design where you're being a bit more conservative with windows and you have windows in wonderful places and lots of light, but you're not, you know, trying to make glass walls. Um, and then if we're looking more towards, um, complexity in terms of the overall shape, uh, a simple uh, box with um, a nice volume inside, so a compact design, that's always gonna be more cost-effective. If we have a, a house in a cold climate that's very spread out and meandering, maybe it's a U-shape, that's gonna be more on that, on that cost uh, premium as well. Now, where we're seeing almost no cost premium is when we're looking at projects like large-scale multifamily, large-scale university dorms, um, non-residential buildings, where really we're not spending any more on the insulation, the air sealing, the windows, and the energy recovery ventilation than we would be spending on the envelope and the systems if it was conventional. But what's happening is they, they flip-flop in a way. So on the large-scale buildings where we may be doing more insulation and better quality windows, we have such marked savings on the mechanical system mm -hmm. sizing that the savings on that equipment side is paying for the increased attention to the envelope. Um, and really what we've been seeing in the large scale is less than a 1% cost premium wow. for doing not just passive house, but the passive house pathway to net zero energy. So net zero energy buildings at less than a 1% cost premium. Wow. So scale is where it's at. And that's actually where I've been focusing for, you know, the last eight or nine years is, is doing passive house at scale. I do have a passion for the small scale passive house though, and especially affordable housing applications of that. So I'm sort of, you know, I'm at both ends of the spectrum in terms of size, but 
Yeah. So it's very exciting to know that we we have the technology, we have the building science know-how to do zero energy buildings that don't cost any more than conventional buildings. So there's so many places I want to go with what you just said, but let's let's stay okay. on cost for a second. So we just sure you just explained that on a single family level, the cost might be between five and 15% more in terms of construction costs. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And then on a larger project, like a multifamily project or dorms or a commercial use, it could be almost nothing in terms of additional costs because of where you're saving in, in terms of you're saving on mechanicals and space required for mechanicals. And that offsets the additional costs for the higher end windows and the, um, and the insulation, the, the additional insulation required. So let's flip that to the other side of the equation. Now, when you do these things, because this is kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier, like when we create a building that automatically stays at a more consistent temperature, mm -hmm. um, that means we need less, we're less reliant on heating and cooling needs. So therefore, we're no matter what, we're going to save some money on that end. So we might, even if we spend, um, if we spend more on the upfront in terms of construction, which it sounds like with the larger scale projects, you really don't, but talk about the flip side in terms of what it means first on just, um, the reduction in energy needs overall and how that might compare to more conventional construction, like what kinds of energy reduction needs are we seeing and how might that translate to cost? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important question. Um, so even on the single family and the smaller multifamily where we do have a higher upfront cost premium, what we do realize over time is a significant return on that investment. So our operating costs are much lower. And if we uh, start doing life cycle cost assessment and look at net present value. These these projects are still very attractive um, if people are owning them and operating them. Um, typically, what we see, and I'm going to give a range and then explain the 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 size of the range. We see an energy cost reduction for space conditioning of between sixty and ninety percent. Now, 60% would be in climates where we just don't need that much space conditioning, right? So, you know, we're, we don't have a lot to begin with and we're, we're saving some on that, but the energy recovery ventilation is not as necessary. We don't have as much of a, a delta T or a temperature difference to, to cover. Um, on the higher end, um, those 90% reductions in the need for space conditioning energy, uh, we're seeing those in places where we would do a large-scale multifamily building. We don't have hardly any upfront costs to begin with anyways. And then the operating costs are, you know, the utility bills are nothing because we, in a cold climate, say this example is in a cold climate, we get to preserve all of the energy we're putting into the building, all of the internal gains coming from people. So these buildings are essentially heating themselves. They really are heating themselves. 
Yes, and because uh, and, and just as we think about that, because there are so many people in the building, and there are so mm -hmm. many appliances like stoves and refrigerators and things along those lines that throw off heat, we're able to use that heat, contain it, because we're not letting it all leak out. And so, mm -hmm. is that part of how that works? That's absolutely correct. Okay. Yeah, we're not we're not wasting any of the uh, useful internal gains that are being recovered in the energy recovery ventilation and put into our incoming fresh air. And yeah, the same with all of the, the gains from people, the phantom heat, all, all of that is useful. <laughs> yeah. Now, how when you say 60 to 90%, is that compared to, you know, conventional more conventional construction? How does that compare to like a LEED certification? Just so people mm -hmm. can understand like the levels that they might go and the gains they might achieve. Yeah, that's also a very good question. So 90%, that really would be compared to existing building stock. Um, when we're getting into the middle of the range, say in the 75% range, that used to be when we were looking at code compliance. However, a really interesting thing is happening in the last number of years, which is the codes are taking inspiration from Passive House. And we now have several jurisdictions in North America where Passive House is becoming code. So that difference between what's code and what's Passive House, it, it's becoming it's becoming quite small to non-existent, um, which is, I mean, that that's what we always wanted was for Passive House to just become the norm. Right. It's not, it's not complex. It's just good building science. So if we were comparing to LEED, uh, what happens with LEED also is that every few years they change their reference code. Um, right now, depending on whether you're LEED version 4.1 or you're uh, LEED version 4, you may either be using ASHRAE 90.1-2016 or ASHRAE 90.1-2019. Um, and the percentage difference is fairly close on those two and it depends on the building typology as well but we might see something like a 30 percent uptick from you know a, mm -hmm. a good lead building say a lead silver or maybe even a lead gold mm -hmm. um, up to passive house and actually uh, there has been some some really nice reciprocity that's been happening between um, the GBCI and the lead rating systems and also um, the Living Building Challenge and their energy pedal with Passive House because when you do uh, passive design or, or passive house um, through uh, FIAS, you essentially earn all of those energy credits. Um, Can you explain so, what FIAS is? Yeah, so FIAS, uh, is the organization in the in the U.S. that's based in Chicago, headquartered in Chicago, uh, that works actually internationally, but um, has you know the strongest presence in um, the U.S. with some presence also in Canada and uh, in Mexico, and they set the passive house standards uh, for North America and 
pretty much anywhere in the world that wants to use climate-specific passive house standards. Um, there is another approach to passive house uh, that comes out of Germany um, that's less focused on climate specificity. Um, it's more of a, a standard where um, it's like one size fits all, and there are slight variations. Mm -hmm. FIUS is a standard that uh, is much more focused on your particular building and your particular climate on your site with your occupants. So it's much more um, acknowledging and customized and optimized for your particular building. Um, and they both use the same building science principles. The FIAS approach is, is just more customized. So it ends up being more cost effective. Oh, that's really um, interesting about the Germany. Mm -hmm. I, I actually, Germany was on my um, list of things to ask you about because I know mm -hmm. that they've been taking a passive design approach um, to the to engineering homes for a long time and more robustly, I, I more robustly in mm -hmm. terms of quantity. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess that does lead me to my next question, which is, I know you mentioned there are certain municipalities or certain areas that are incorporating passive design into code. Um, into the code, but really, I think the one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that to I mean, it still seems that the U.S., the United States, has been relatively slow to adopt or or you know passive design principles in comparison to certain parts of Europe. And especially given, especially given what we're facing with the climate, um, both both in terms of, you know, what we're trying to do um, in terms of um, addressing climate change, but also in terms of like, you know, again, people's financials in terms of um, building resilient houses that even again, if, if everything goes crazy with the grid, you're still going to be okay because your building design is is good. Um, I actually want to mm -hmm. get more into that in a little bit. But um, why do you think I still run into a lot of people where this feels like uncertainty to them? They don't understand it. And again, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. But why do you think we've been slower in the United States to adopt this very basic solid engineering that can accomplish all the things we say we want to accomplish? Because we're Americans. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we, Americans in general are very independent spirited, I think. And you know, not to get too political, but I think there's a, a much longer history of um, more uh, sort of socialistic types of perspectives in government in Europe. And I feel like um, one of the things that maybe was, I won't, I won't say it's a misstep because I think everything happens in its own perfect time and its own perfect way, but you know, when Passive House came back to the U.S., because it started here in the 70s during the Carter administration, um, you know, and here and in Canada with the locale homes and and the sort of original Passive Houses and then 
um, you know, the inspiration was taken up by o Bo Adamson and Wolfgang Feist when they were working on a project for China. And then they, they took all of these principles they had collected from everywhere, great building science principles, and they codified it. And then, you know, it, it came back to the U.S. in the, in the form of the, the PHI uh, standard and, and approach. When it came back, what happened here in the U.S. was that the first adopters we didn't we didn't really grasp that because of the way americans are you know we we definitely have a, a few different sort of approaches to energy in this country and some folks really feel like energy independence is something they value and it's an important part of security for your family and your community and you know, your, your city, your country. And then there are people who are more focused on the collective and climate change and habitat. And oftentimes these people don't, they get in arguments and they don't really agree. And one of the things that I feel like we're still struggling with a bit is to really grab people's hearts or grab their emotions around this and make it personal for them. And I know that sounds strange talking about a, you know, a building science based approach to having a comfortable, healthy, energy independent type home. But there are homes, they're the buildings we work in. So they're, they're part and parcel of the fabric of who we are in our community. And I just, you know, I feel like there, there's a lot happening in this country right now. Um, and even in terms of the media that is separating people further, I feel like the reality is we're all, we're all somewhere in the middle and we all agree much more than, than it would seem. And there needs to be like this middle path to explaining this building science where, you know, everyone can understand it's good for everyone. It's good if you want to be energy independent and, you know, run around with your guns and whatever else. And it's great if you want to help save the planet and prevent climate change. And it's well, good for all of those reasons. I think you bring up an excellent point because it, it shouldn't be political because, because as you say, it really solves many many sides of the political equation in terms of, mm -hmm. again, if, if you are about self-reliance, right? If you are about self-reliance, which sometimes gets affiliated a little bit more with the right, right? If you are about self-reliance, mm -hmm. you want to build a passive house. You want yes. to build a passive house because you will be able to be self-reliant no matter if the grid goes down, energy gets That's caught right. up. You're, you're not reliant on other countries for things. Like, so, so to me, the fact that if this has, if this science, this this building science has gotten lumped in more with progressive um, left, which you know is also a beautiful thing. I mean, I'm all of, I, I love the fact that this you know reduces our impact on the climate, but I cannot, for the life of me, wrap my brain around why 
anybody on any side of the political spectrum wouldn't embrace this because this is, this does make us self-reliant. This does make us energy independent. We are not reliant on other countries. We are like, we get to take care of ourselves <laughs> by building a house like this or by building housing like this or buildings like this. So oh, by yeah. building hospitals like this, like to have a hospital like this, that is not reliant on like, <laughs> like extreme, you know, temperature shifts. This is not a political issue. This this is a engineering issue. That's just it. I mean, that's the beauty of energy engineering. It is, it's it, engineering is above politics. Like it, 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 it should flutter above it. And that's what this yeah. is. This is great engineering that everybody should be embracing. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually throw out a couple of other things that in my head, I think are sort of barriers to passive house. And I just want to take, you know, get your read on that. Um, yeah. So this is a little bit of pushback, but sometimes I think passive house and some um, gets uh, people when they think of passive design or passive house, they think of not attractive housing <laughs> or, or not attractive buildings, right? They think of yeah. um, just not aesthetically pleasing, not welcoming, not you know, um, how do we overcome that piece? Because I actually think that that is more of a barrier that than most people give credence to, you know, if we, if you could point to the most stunning building, right? The most stunning mm -hmm. either house or multifamily building, if you could point to it and say, guess what? That's passive design. I mean, I think you're, you're, it's a game changer. Yeah. I, I know that there is, um, there definitely is that misperception. And again, I, f I feel like those of us who were the first adopters, we, we made a few mistakes. And some of those mistakes were, you know, sort of showcasing these buildings that were, you know, boxes with not too many windows or, you know, pointing to examples in Germany before we had many here that were like that and thinking that that's the way it needed to be or, folks that we were trying to convince to do passive house thinking that's the way it would be. There's actually a really funny moment in one of uh, Trump's speeches a while back where I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy cow, passive house has come to the stage. And he said, and we're going to do those super efficient houses that have no windows. And I'm like, he's talking about passive house. He's got it all wrong, but he's talking about passive house. Damn it. <laughs> Well, but, you know, I mean, that that's just it. It's like, that's the misperception. But passive house can look like a normal house, anything you want, right. really, a normal house. And the window yeah, designs, so the engineering of the newer windows, the triple pane and everything else are is so good that you you can use... If, if you want larger windows, lots of windows, and obviously there's trade-offs yeah. with every decision you make, but it, it can look any way you want. There's going to be a premium on some of those costs because the more glazing you have at a higher price point window, then that's going to take up the cost. But like, I, I do feel like that, that is out there as, as, um, as as a barrier and i can see it in people's faces every time i talk about passive house and they bring up examples of certain buildings and i'm like it doesn't have to be that way okay so here's my yeah. here's here's another thing i think and this is just my i'm just my subjective um 
opinion on another area where passive house, um, why it hasn't been more, more accepted across the country. It's, I don't know, and this kind of ties into the last thing. I don't know that the branding has been great. And I hate to use the word branding because personally, I really hate branding. Like I respond to things where there's not branding, right? But I think even the name, which I know it's the name has changed a bit. I think they've changed from it was passive house and now it's moving toward passive design. Is that correct? Or is there, is there some stuff going on with that? So, so FIUS is no longer Passive House Institute US. Mm-hmm. That's what it used to stand okay. for, P-H-I-U-S. So it, it just became FIUS. And the terminology that we've been using now is passive design and passive building. Right. Um, but even the word passive, exactly. I mean, I think, you, <laughs> I think you summed it up well in terms of like, well, what we're talking about is the building can... There's passive survivability there. You don't need to do much to it, and it's still going to be a lot more comfortable and resilient than anything else. Because essentially your envelope, your building envelope, is acting like part of your mechanical system. But, yeah, we've had, you know, at board meetings and technical committee retreats and stuff, we're like, how do we... How do we make a better name? You know, I mean, the word that came to my mind, and I'm not, I've not given this a ton of thought, but like when I think of passive house, I think of resilient housing. And resilient is a word that I think everybody feels drawn to a bit and can wrap their, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and wants in their life and for themselves. And when you think of the word passive, it is, it's just like, it, it feels a little vague and evasive. And what exactly does that mean? Whereas if you're going to build a resilient house, there are these things that you do, you know, one, two, three resilient house. Now it's resilient against the, you know, um, temperature extremes and climate extremes and allows you to do a lot of other things. Anyway, that was just take that for what it's worth. But I, I've um, been, again, trying to take note as I've been having lots of, you know, discussions with contractors and builders and um, MEPs and, uh, and Mm -hmm. the general public about this in terms of like, what seems to be the barriers. Okay. So, I, well, tied to everything we were just saying, um, I'm going to let you just comment on this. And I, I alluded to it already. Mm-hmm. But if I said passive design is a matter of national security, what would you say about that? I would absolutely agree with you. I feel like why the why the heck are we wasting our time on and spinning our wheels on so many other issues where I mean energy security it's it's a big deal and yeah you know the the oil companies they're going through tar sands and that costs a lot of money and to the extent that we need to rely on fossil fuels coming from other countries that's a weakness um because we saw during covid supply chains fall apart we've seen what's happening in the ukraine it's it's a big deal and even you know you hear some preppers talk about well the grid of our country it's pretty fragile and there's 
you know, it wouldn't take a whole lot to, to bring everything down because it's so interconnected. Um, and aging as well. And we're putting a lot of pressure on it with inefficient buildings, adding more inefficient buildings. So I, I think it's absolutely an important part of, of security, of national security. Um, and even I think the Department of Defense thinks that it is. You know, there's been some interest there, and the Army Corps of Engineers has sent people to certified passive house consultant training. Um, we've got a, a fellow on the on the FIAS board of directors who um, goes and lobbies on the Hill, and you know, he's got some contacts in the armed forces as well. So it's it's coming. It's just not you know, it's not being adopted quickly enough in my opinion but I will say I feel like with places like the state of Massachusetts and the state of New York yes. really pushing their codes to a place where in some ways they're pretty equivalent to passive house that that's all going to start shifting I'm so, so glad you brought that up because I think the thing we didn't talk about is one of the other barriers is um, contractors not knowing uh -huh. how to do this. And therefore, I don't want to say resistant, but, you know, they're, they're under the gun and under deadline and have to deliver their products um, on time and on budget and introduce something that's new to them, even if it's old build old and and proven building science but it's just not the way that they do it in that region right, right? yeah so yep. if you even if you want to build a passive house or a passive multifamily building and you try to get a contractor um to do that a yeah. lot of them are resistant until until and this is where Massachusetts got it going on, right? Until they until they've had exposure to it once or twice. Like at first, it's like, oh, I don't know that we want to do this. And then they work with the consultant and the certifier, and they learn how to do the wall assemblies, and they do it on one building, and now they're ready to go. So part of it is training the trades, you know, and right. getting them comfortable with it so that when a consumer actually goes to the trade and says, I want to do this kind of building, they're not met with, no, we don't do that, or we don't do that around here, or there are other ways, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Instead, like, it's it's very symbiotic, symbiotic that I go to a builder and want to do this, and they're like, yes, I've done this before. I can do this. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. that's what's happening in Massachusetts I, um, in, some of the other, in some of the other states where they're because of the, is it, is it there, are they doing it through incentives? Is, are there incentives that they are providing? It's, it's both carrot and stick. Okay. Um, it's, it's incentives. Um, Mass Save has a lot of great incentives at every level, you know, from, from single family to sort of double decker, small multifamily on up to, to large scale. And also the stretch code which is already being, you know, early adoption is happening by, by some of the, the jurisdictions within the state of Mass. So it's, it's all happening. And I think you're absolutely right. I've experienced the same thing um, because I've been doing Passive House for so long and I've done many firsts, um, you know, the first super large scale one in the country in Kansas City, um, first 
non-residential passive house building with curtain wall on it. Um, some of what I've encountered is working with these these construction companies where they're like, we don't know anything about this, but you know we're doing it. And I tell you what, once they go passive, they don't go back. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to go back because suddenly the builder, the builder is always very, very important, but they get to, they get to bring back a nobility to the trade. Mm -hmm. Like they are instrumental really in helping move this whole thing forward. And knowing how much of a difference they are making down to the guy that's attaching the drywall to the studs and making sure it's got extra ceiling around the edge. Um, you know, at every level, whether it's, you know, the last guy who just started in a new trade that's working on a passive house envelope or a construction manager of a very large construction firm, um, taking pride in the fact that, you know, he is the air boss. He's the air ceiling boss on this first large-scale passive house in, in this jurisdiction that's never done it before. It's friggin' exciting. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. And I think that um, that sort of contagious excitement and pride and what they're doing it's something that's really good, yeah. you know, and even though there are a lot more women in the trades these days than there used to be, it's still primarily men and our men need things to be proud of and feel good about. And, you know, I mean that, that job of building really super efficient buildings and retrofitting our existing building stock for successive generations and having the confidence because we've used building science, it's going to be there and it's going to perform. That is a noble, honorable trade. Well, and it's really important. Well, and, and so then what happens in Massachusetts with the carrots and the sticks is because more passive buildings are going up, um, more contractors are becoming comfortable with it, not only comfortable with it, but as you said, excited about it, trained in it, and it just mm -hmm. spirals from there. So um, I am super excited about the future of passive design, and I will be shouting it from the rooftops as long as, as, long as I'm on this earth, because I am just blown away by this technology that is right there for us to use. Okay, yeah. so what drew you personally to it? Um, you know, what personally drew you to passive design and where do you see yourself like moving forward with passive design? Um, I had been, um, my, my first profession, I was um, a dancer. I was a ballet and modern dancer. And I always had a strong tie to the environment, you know, maybe because of working with my, my body. I, I, um, did, you know, like non-traditional um, medicinal kinds of things, herbs and vegetarianism and that stuff. And so it just sort of bled in to this general concern and, and compassion with respect to the other creatures that share our planet with us. And 
I have a pretty technical mind. And after my dancing career was over when I was about 30, I ended up sort of, you know, taking a foray um, through the natural foods industry. And somehow I ended up um, starting different green teams at different companies. And I ended up working on building projects, um, energy efficiency projects. And they just lit me up, Kathleen. They really mm -hmm. did. And I realized, you know, I'm a numbers gal. I really love the numbers. I, I love where you can have a measurable impact, a before and after, and, and you really get to see and experience the difference that you've made and quantify it. And um, I was doing energy consulting and, I, you know, I started working on lead projects and doing lead energy modeling. And then I found Passive House. I think I found it in 2010 or 2011. And it took me a while to get organized to, to be uh, trained as a Passive House consultant. But once I went through that training and, you know, got my teeth into the underlying science, which really... It's pretty simple algebraic equations. That's what building physics primarily is until you get to the combined heat and moisture transport and then, and then it gets complex. But it was just so exhilarating to, to see this horizon in my mind of like, oh my gosh, this completely works. We can measure it. It's simple. It's easy. Um, it's not nebulous. It's, you know, it's really well-defined. And I just never, I never looked back. I, it took me a few years to figure out how to stop doing other kinds of work. But from the time I, I found Passive House, that, that really has been my singular focus. And so I started with um, single-family homes in the San Francisco Bay Area and then, you know, gradually moved into doing some of the first multifamily and then some of the first non-residential stuff. And um, I, I was one of the founding members of the FIAS uh, Technical Committee and have served on their board of directors for, well, forever. Um, and so really where I see myself going um, is, is continuing on the path that I'm on. I've been working for uh, larger engineering firms for the last five years because as Passive House sort of, you know, came to the forefront, um, these larger engineering firms realized, oh, we need, we need to be doing this. And so I've, I've been uh, helping um, these engineering firms tackle it and build Passive House teams within them. And so I just started um, with a firm that I've been wanting to work for for probably eight years, Thornton Tomasetti. And they do a lot of large-scale buildings. Um, and uh, one of the things they focus on that I haven't had the pleasure of working too much on yet are K-12 through schools. Mm. I'm really excited about that. Yes. And I'm also very passionate and excited about affordable housing. Now, Thornton Tomasetti does some affordable housing, more large-scale multifamily stuff. Um, and so I hope to continue uh, doing some of that. But for me personally, what I'm really excited about is working in my local community in my small um, mid-coast region of Maine and actually getting some developments going here, um, just starting with the demonstration development of smaller scale homes, not tiny homes, right? Um, but somewhere between a tiny home and a, you know, a, a 
reasonably sized single family home because people in Maine don't they don't really love living in multifamily buildings. They right. want their own house. Yeah. It's just part of the culture. Um, but putting together a demonstration project where we have several essentially zero energy passive houses at small scale that are absolutely affordable for people and working with builders in the area to put together some panelization approaches, um, really trying to regionalize the supply chain so it you know, we don't have to waste money on transportation and it's resilient if supply chain shuts down and we're not getting things shipped from other places because there's no diesel fuel or whatever else could happen. So that's definitely something I, I see for my future is starting to get into the development side of things because, you know, by now I've, I've worked just um, as a passive house consultant on my own with my own firm. I've gone into the larger engineering firms working with structural engineers and building scientists. The last firm I worked for was um, uh, a pretty large uh, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing engineering firm. And so I've, I've sort of, you know, done all of the different parts of it. I haven't um, gone to work for a developer yet, but I've, I've worked with enough developers and I'm interested enough in the financial piece of things. And I'm like, you know, I can figure this out. I can start putting together the right people to make something happen. So, yeah, that's, that's where I see things headed. And really, um, you know, one of the alignments that's also happening is a subgroup of the, of the FIAS um, board of directors is actually forming a, um, a community housing development organization. And it's just in its nascence right now, but what we're hoping to do with it is to be a, a technical resource for folks in all different places around the U.S. who want to do um, developments with smaller scale homes and help them understand, okay, what are your resources? What's the most cost-effective way to do this? Can we help you fundraise? Can we use the the FIAS sort of brand and name and reputation to help you get this off the ground right. and help people um, so that they don't need to reinvent the wheel. Right. Because we've, we've got a really great recipe already, um, especially um, with the, the prescriptive approach to passive design um, that, you know, this, this shouldn't be difficult to do. So I'm, I'm very excited about helping in that regard, however I can, because housing is, it's an issue everywhere. It really is an issue everywhere. And as energy costs skyrocket, especially in our climates where we have, you know, really large cooling loads and really large heating loads and the climate is shifting, you know, we need to, find ways for people to be able to to have homes that aren't costing them an arm and a leg to keep comfortable. Right, right. Yeah. So last question, you've lived a rich and interesting <laughs> life and do interesting work in the world. And I like to ask guests for a book recommendation and it doesn't have to yeah. be anything to do with passive design. If you don't, it can be anything. Just what, what, what book has moved you? Um, I read so many books. I, I thought about this question when, when you sent it ahead of time and probably one of the most influential books for me has been, um, 
and I'm, I'm going to forget the name. I might have to get up and go grab it because I put it in my bag. Um, it's, it's essentially a, a book about lean design and construction. Mm. This is it. Transforming. Transforming design and construction. Great. A framework yeah. for change. I am getting that one. I am getting yeah. that one. So it's... Um, what was it specifically about it? So I have a very... I have a very organizational mind. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is systematizing expertise so that people who don't want to wade through the learning curve can apply expertise learned over years much more quickly. And one of the things about this book that I really loved is it gives frameworks for organizing not only how companies who deliver design and construction work, but organizational methods for organizing projects themselves. Mm. And it's just eminently logical. And um, it really focuses on efficiency and not wasting effort. Mm -hmm. And one of the forces that I feel at work in my life um, is a sense of urgency about doing the work that we do and an awareness that there are not nearly enough people in my industry mm. to do what needs to be done. And so the idea that we can leverage organizational methods of applying expertise without wasting time <laughs> is something that really gets me going. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a little nerdy and it's probably a little bit dry for a lot of people, but I feel like you can open to any page of the book and immediately get ideas um, that you can apply almost immediately. One of my favorite ideas is um, uh, the concept of standard work. And it's something that's used in lean construction or lean manufacturing. You know, this is, if folks know about Sigma-6 or any of that stuff. Lean construction is just a, it's a furtheration of lean manufacturing practices um, applied to the construction and design industry. And so the concept of standard work is, if there's something that you find yourself doing again and again, streamline it, systematize it so that you can have a process of continual improvement and you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time. It's like the iterative, iterative process of software development, right? That you're always learning from what's working and not working and building on that in very small incremental ways until, you know, six months later, you have a stunning, you know, product, yes. right? So it's, right. it's like taking some of that from um, and, and applying it to this. Well, this was a lot of fun and um, very informative and... Um, I'm grateful you're out there, and I'm also grateful to have more females or <laughs> yes. females in this industry. And so thank you. Agreed. Thank you for everything you do. I, um, I appreciate Likewise. Yeah, I appreciate your time with this interview, and I appreciate the work you're doing in the world. Thank you very much, Kathleen. I really appreciate you inviting me, and it's really been a pleasure chatting with you. 
Thank you for listening or watching and sharing. This is the Kathleen Sessions podcast. You can find me and all of these episodes at thekathleensessions.com or on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. Have a stunning day, everyone. Bye.